1: That's stamps.com. Code program.
2: Hello, I'm Matt Shorley, and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. On today's episode, the Times Radio focus group returns. This time with a group we don't talk about enough. Often on the focus groups, we talk to Conservative voters now switching to Labour. Today, Conservative voters from 2019 who say they're backing Reform UK. We ask them why, what they make of Rishi Sunak, Keir Starmer and Nigel Farage. And for a lot of our listeners who maybe call themselves woolly liberal centrists, it might be a tough listen, but it's important to hear what real voters have got to say about politics in their own words. On The Columnist today, Manveen Rana and Matthew Syed react to this damning report into three police forces' failure to catch Wayne Cousins before he went on to murder Sarah Everard. And if you like what you hear on the podcast, don't forget you can join me for Politics Without the Boring Bits on Times Radio. Just listen for free on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. That's Politics Without the Boring Bits, weekdays from 10. Now, have you seen, there's a brilliant story in The Times today, in The Times diary. Matt Hancock. Oh, we love a story about Matt Hancock. He's a big fan of the show. Matt Hancock, uh, Patrick Kidd writes in The Times today, Matt Hancock forgot one of the key rules of public speaking on a visit to Eton on Tuesday. He forgot to check who was in the audience. So Matt Hancock, former Health Secretary, uh, began his talk to the boys at Eton with a joke about how Jacob Rees-Mogg is not a good politician. But what Matt Hancock didn't know was who was in the audience. And when questions were open to the floor, a thin, bespectacled lad called Peter immediately <laughs> popped his hand up and declared that, in fact, his father was a great man in public and in private. Especially, Peter Rees-Mogg added, as he remained loyal to his wife. (laughs) I mean, well done, that man. Well done, uh, that man. I don't know if I should mention this, but um, we've been doing another exit interview on the show on Monday. Uh, we've asked all the every single MP who's uh, announced they're standing out in the next election, we've asked them to come on and do an exit interview. We asked Matt Hancock to do it. And uh, we got a message back from his office saying it's a, it's a very good series, but he won't be doing it because of all the things that I've written and said about him. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew
3: on Times Radio.
2: Yes, and as it's a Thursday, we're joined by Manveen Rana, host of our Stories of Our Times podcast. Hi, Manveen.
0: Hello.
4: And
2: this week's Matthew is Sunday Times columnist Matthew Syed. Hello, Matthew. Are you there, Morning. Matthew? Morning. Hey, hey, hey. Very good. Well done. Now, Manveen, you're not here in the studio, which normally I'd reprimand you for because we haven't got any snacks.
0: I know. No cake. No cake, I fear.
2: But where in the world are you?
0: Uh, I'm actually in Tel Aviv at the moment, um, looking at the situation here. So I'm going to be in Israel for a little while, reporting on what's happening as the country's sort of looking at the idea of a ceasefire. We're told by by President Biden, potentially a ceasefire by by the end of the weekend.
2: And you were there last summer, I remember. So how, does it feel, does it feel very different?
0: Very different. You know, you really get a sense of this being a country at war. You know, from the moment you arrive, um, just walking through the airport, it's sort of, you know, everywhere you go, there are hostage posters. Um, You know, in Tel Aviv, even like the sort of the shopping malls, they look like they've been there forever. There's huge installations that are sort of now look like sort of the the name of a mall, and it all says "Bring them home." There's a huge sense of this being, um, you know, a, a country in in middle of a war and a real sort of desperation to get the hostages back. At the same time, the weirdness of it is that you know life also carries on as normal. I mean, a lot of the businesses can't work in the normal way because people have been conscripted. There's a lack of people who can sort of. Fill all the jobs, but you know you look out and there are still sort of people playing volleyball sometimes on the beach. So it's it's quite weird. It's a very weird atmosphere, um, but that sort of that sense around the hostages, which you know you can't escape anywhere you go in pub- in, in public life here. You know, sort of you, you go you go shopping, you go out on the streets. You know, you, you're reminded of the hostages, and that's becoming a real problem, I think, for Netanyahu. Um, and there's a sense here that you know the, one of the reasons he. Will probably end up uh, uh, agreeing to a temporary ceasefire will be in order to get the pressure of of the hostage families off his back because you know they're they're worried the longer this war goes on if they now go into Rafa there'll be more hostages dead as well as Hamas and as well as lots of innocent Palestinians so there's a lot of pressure on on him here domestically to to pause the action and try and get some hostages out. Mm.
2: Well, well you obviously everyone hopes that the, there will be some sort of revolution resolution, like you said, maybe even while you're while you're there. Well we look forward to listening to that um reporting on the on the podcast, Manveen. Uh let's turn our attention to this um the breaking news, which is cu- literally coming through almost as we uh speak. The results of the investigation into Sarah Everard's killer and whether uh, Wayne Cousins could have been stopped. Uh the report has found that he should never have been a police officer. It says three separate forces could and should have stopped him. Uh, the report goes on to look at his career and highlights how major red flags about him were repeatedly ignored before he went on to murder 33-year-old Sarah Everard in South London in March 2021. So let's just have a listen to, this is the, uh, the chair of the inquiry, uh, Lady Eilish Angiolini speaking at a press conference literally in the last few minutes.
4: Critically, this report contains 16 recommendations which are designed to help prevent a situation where anyone entrusted with the powers of a serving police officer abuses that trust in such a heinous way again. The fragility of public trust and confidence in policing affects us all, including those good police officers doing the right thing every day. It is time for all those with responsibility for policing to do everything they can to improve standards of recruitment, vetting and investigation. Wayne Cousins was never fit to be a police officer. Police leaders need to be sure there isn't another cousins operating in plain sight.
2: And so the report goes on to say that they've uncovered evidence that Cousins was accused of a string of other incidents of sexual abuse, including a very serious sexual assault of a child barely into her teens. Um Matthew, I mean to some extent you know, we we heard a lot of his terrible uh, um, previous track record during the trial and what came out afterwards. But the, what was so shocking about this case was the suggestion, and it's certainly what Sarah Everard's family believe, that she would not have trusted him, wouldn't have got into his car had he not shown his warrant card and presented himself as being a police officer. That, that actually his position as a police officer gave him that opportunity to exploit the trust of someone a law-abiding woman going about her own business.
5: Yeah that's that's awful and um obviously the reports just come out it'll be very interesting to see how glaring these um uh, red lights were and how loud the alarm bells should have rung and the extent to which the police can make sure that people like him never Get the opportunity to abuse people's trust i think that it's just worth saying though that um the vast majority of police officers are fantastic public servants whenever i see a police officer on the street if i'm with my kids or on my own i always go if i've got time go over and say hi ask them uh, how they've been getting on the challenges they face on the street that i'm living on here in southwest london it's quite a small street it's um Yes, it's a reasonably well-to-do street in Richmond, but there was tragically a um, a death on the on the road about fifty yards from where I am speaking to you now. Uh, uh, after a nightclub, someone was uh, was killed, and there was blood on the street. And the children, my two kids, Evie and Teddy, were very concerned when we went out the, the following morning, Saturday morning, was it, and saw police cordoned off, blood on the road. But as we went over, one of the young police officers said, you know, I can see you're scared, talked to my two children, reassured them they were looking to find out what had happened and they were there to protect them. What I find very difficult is politicians, particularly in situations – I know we're moving beyond cousins here – but I I do think that we are too quick to blame all police officers Mm. for the pockets – of bad behaviour which unquestionably exist and need to be rooted out, and we're undermining trust. Politicians are completely shameless in blaming the police for almost everything these days. I, find, I personally find it quite offensive.
2: Well, I suppose, actually, uh, um, Manveen, the police officers serving, and Ma- uh, Matthew's completely right, that, you know, they're, they're as appalled, if not more, by what's been done by uh, a fellow officer. But they are being let yeah. down by a system, by a by a boss class, if you like, who, for whatever reason, whether it's structural, whether it's cultural, whether it's legal, and, the, you know, um, Mark Rowley, the head of the Met, has, has said it's possibly all those things. But they've been just as badly let down by, by the system, the officers themselves.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think Matthew's right. I think there are some incredibly brave policemen out on the beat who do this day in, day out, and get very little gratitude. And since the Sarah Everard murder we've had a spate of stories which have sort of shown the negative you know the real problems with police culture um and i think it has led to sort of an awful lot of public suspicion of the police particularly for women in london i think that's it's been a moment which will be very hard for for the police to sort of rebuild bridges in a way or to sort of um build trust again um and and it is important to remember that it's not across the board you know that the the, mm. the the stories although there was a spate of them are isolated but you know you're right i think the bigger problem here is about the systems that allow this to happen it's the the, the culture that clearly is problematic you know we've sort of had problems with race we've had problems with misogyny um we've had problems with Policemen who do take advantage of their position to carry out terrible crimes, you know, not always in the Wayne Cousins um, sort of frame but still some terrible things happening that we've had reported around London. Um, And I I think what this what this particular case raises is just the problems they seem to have with vetting, because you want to be able to, as Matthew did, you want to be able to walk up to any policeman in the street and think that obviously if they're there, there is a system that has put them there and they are trusted. And what's gone wrong with Wayne Cousins is somehow Despite having a history of you know indecent exposure, assaulting a child, pulling a knife in order to you know to carry out some of this predatory behavior, he was not only allowed to be a policeman, but he even got into one of the most elite bits of the police where he was armed and a bodyguard in sort of you know for for diplomatic reasons. How that was allowed to happen, I think, is just utterly mystifying. And in terms of rebuilding trust, for you know, ordinary people and ordinary communities with the police. it's those systems that need to change mm. for people to feel like they can trust every policeman. You can walk up to every policeman in the street and and expect them to be as helpful as so many of them are uh, and not to be the ones who are bundling you in a car and potentially murdering. You know that I think that is you know if you're if you're a woman in London, there is just this awful fear now that you 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 know you don't necessarily believe you'll always be treated as you should be um by the police because. We keep hearing so much about there being this terrible culture, and I think to change that, you have to change the systems, and you have to you have to have leadership that sort of takes it on so the, and weeds it out. Go, on, Matthew.
5: Don't the politicians have something to answer for here? Um, if, if you don't mind me coming back in, Matt. Yeah, yeah uh, of course, yeah. You know, but Sweller S- Braverman last year said they were biased um, yeah. it, it, against, it, in favour of of people of my colour and black people because of the Black Lives Matter and. Uh, allowing the Palestinian protest to, to to go ahead. And we're also told they're institutionally racist against people of my colour and, and black people. I mean, they, they, they seem to be institutionally every single type of ideology at the same time, which is obviously <laughs> incoherent. What it shows to me, Matt, is that politicians are incapable at the moment of taking responsibility for changing relevant laws that enable the police to do the job that they think the public wish. I remember during COVID, it was truly extraordinary. Yeah. I, I remember police getting blamed by people in my neck of the woods because people were talking in groups during the two-meter rule, and they were saying, the police should be moving them on. They're standing, allowing people to break the law. <laughs> and the moment they broke them up, people were saying, it's an absolute disgrace that they're, they're getting in the way of people having a conversation in the open air. And politicians started going after the police. In other words, police frontline professionals like the police have to make judgments yeah. in real time that reflect very difficult trade-offs. And when police outsource those trade-offs and then blame the police for making these judgments, they undermine faith in the people who protect the rule of law. Yes, we have to get rid of the racists, we have to get rid of the pockets of of, of bad behaviour, but politicians... In this in this febrile atmosphere we're in at the moment, it's, it's, I've not experienced anything like this. I think in my adult lifetime, the irresponsibility of politicians in a society that built the rule of law, that really ought to have a deep institutional memory of its importance, it, it's for me it's scandalous.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that, and I think uh, I think you know as Matthew points out, what the politicians have managed to do is just make it impossible to be at the at the head of the police force and try and fix it because you're constantly, you're just having to respond to really unreasonable stuff from politicians. It's very hard to actually um, implement cultural change when actually most of the time you're just there for top cover because there's so much incoming from, from Westminster. It's I mean, it, none of that is helpful.
2: And then, yeah, we have the Prime Minister talking about mob rule on the streets and, uh, you know, implying the police have sort of lost control of the streets and that it's all, you know, ratcheting up the, you know,
5: the, the, uh, the rhetoric.
2: And it doesn't feel like that necessarily helps either, Matthew.
5: The, the, honestly, I, I've never seen anything quite like it. Uh, mob, mob rule... I mean, obviously, I, I, I'm scandalised by some of the things we've seen. I don't know. I think the Batley teacher still in hiding. Yeah, people um, have been because that of out the today, Islamic yeah. protest at the at the school and the intimidation of MPs to buy a you know, m- most of these protests are obviously people are peaceful. There are many Jews at these uh, protests, but there are hate messages and and banners yeah i I think that's it but mob rule i I don't think is the uh, the appropriate terminology but when you look at what liz truss has been saying braverman lee anderson the inability to to properly call out some of this racism um is shocking and you know braverman was the home secretary i mean she's saying we've had this invasion of people and i don't like the terminology at all but she was the home secretary who presided over the historically record levels of immigration and uh, asylum-seeking, and they're completely incapable of doing anything about it. It's almost like this exaggerated rhetoric is a substitute for coherent and rational policy by politicians... I just don't think they're high quality enough is Surely my view. Not. I, I, Surely they not. don't <laughs> and I, I say this t- uh, hey, with hesitation because some of the challenges we face are complex they're yeah, systems yeah. challenges. You make one change to one component of the system there are unintended consequences but the inability to see the system as a whole and to think clearly about what we need to do it it really is poor. It it I, I, I you know and I say that with some respect for people who are willing to go into the line of fire as politicians, but this, this what we're seeing at the moment, is shocking.
2: Now, a play running in the West End has confirmed at least two performances where their white audiences will be effectively banned. The play is called Slave Play. It stars, amongst others, uh, The Game of Thrones' Kit Harrington, And it's due to have blackout nights where only black-identifying audience members are welcomed. The producers said say it so they can experience and discuss an event free from the white gaze. There's a broader point here as well about the sort of people who go to the theatre more generally. Um, let's speak to... Uh, let's bring into the conversation Solange Erdang, co-director of the Black British Theatre Awards. Solange, set out for us why why you why you think this is a good idea.
4: Um, It's a brilliant idea. I think um, it's so important... Um, to have that important space. Um, it's a safe place, it's where discussions can be made, it's really important for um, young young black talent to see themselves and to be able to discuss everything. Um, I think it will broaden demographics in theatre as a whole, um, as I think it will it definitely just opens doors it really does
2: is there a a risk a downside to this that you by saying creating a safe space it implies it's not safe to have an audience of white people watching a play and i suppose it's also particularly important this play is about slavery and and the the experience of black people so that that is that is why it's particularly this play and not some i know random somewhere. but is there not a risk that you're implying that it's not safe for black people to go to a a, a a normal performance where there are other white people in the audience
4: um i think the reaction would be different i think the discussion would be different i think um the audience might have their guard up on what they can say and what they can't yeah. say in front of a white White audience, Um, so I think that no, I'm not saying it's not safe, but I think it gives more freedom to speak honestly about the subject matter of the play or the musical or the show. So, in in that respect, yeah, I I think it's really important to have that freedom.
2: This is a really interesting topic. This, and I I, I keep sort of flip flopping on what I I think about. Manveen, what do you what do you make of this idea?
0: Um, I'm all for. Having more diversity in theatre audiences, I, you know, I think I think that's a great ambition. I just worry that the moment you start having black only nights, you know, it then starts to feel like on any other night that's not when you're necessarily openly welcomed by the theatre world. And I just think there's something about theatre. You know, one of the joys of it is that you're not watching something on screen; you're not just sort of taking something in. Just being there as part of the audience, being part of the crowd, you're sort of contributing to the energy of the night and there's something lovely about having you know very mixed audiences who bring their own different experiences to a play and the you know the way that sort of mingles and and the way it affects everybody present so i i i worry that you end up um a, with, you know, in, in, in an attempt to, to have more diverse audiences actually telling there are only sort of certain moments when they can come and, and watch. And it's not as, you know, it's not as comfortable the rest of the time. Whereas I'd much rather, you know, it was just an open experience for everyone yeah, yeah. all the time. Um, but but also I just worry that um, you're consuming it. You know, I can see I can see why they sort of want people to feel that they can have a, a reaction in a safe mm. space. But I sort of think there's something wonderful yeah. about the, the ability of theatre to change opinions, to make people think differently. Uh, and I think for that, just, I'd want a mixed audience. I'd want as many people as possible to be drawn into the experience.
5: Matthew, what do you think of it? I don't understand it at all. Um, <laughs> it, it, so it's only black people because it's about slavery and black people are descendants of slaves. Is that, is that the, the logic? And if so, what about black people who are descendants of slavers? It seems to me, I'd like to understand a bit more of the logic behind the... Solange, I know know you're not
2: involved in the production, but can you answer Matthew's
4: question? Um, There's definitely a lack of um, black audience in even black subject matter plays. And I I really do think that by having those evenings or or afternoons, it will open doors and and attract new audiences
2: because... So, one thing that somebody's just mentioned in making this point, if, for instance, I don't know, let's say it was Roy Chubby Brown announced he was doing a white-only performance, we would basically think that that was an outrage, wouldn't we?
4: Yeah, but, I mean, if you look at theatre as a whole, it's pretty much 90% white audience every night. Yeah. I mean, so, um, you know, it, I, I always look back at audience when I go and see a show and, you know, there's some audiences that there's like four or five people of colour in the audience, if you're lucky. And so, you know, that that yeah. that has to change. And also going through to become stage managers, to become um, costume designers, um, there has to be a lot more access to... Okay
2: theatre as all Manveen and Matthew Syed there and you can listen to Manveen on the stories of our times podcast wherever you're listening to this and catch Matthew Syed in the Sunday Times up next is the focus group
6: the big
1: thing
2: Every month on Times Radio, we convene a focus group of real voters, exactly how political parties, how Downing Street do it as well, to sit alongside political polling, to find out how they think the government's getting on and see what matters to real people outside the Westminster bubble and not on Twitter. Uh, today, as ever, uh, the focus group was run by James Johnson from Jail Partners, used to do exactly this for uh, number 10 under Theresa May. And James is here in the studio, normally he's in America. James, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. It's much nicer to be doing at 11am rather than 6am. But well, it's very nice to see. It's very nice to see it. So, let's begin with
3: the legal disclaimer. What is a focus group and what is it not? So a focus group is a collection of people, a small group of people, um, to dig into the numbers in the polls. We're not saying this is representative. Um, We're talking today to Conservative to Reform switchers, so Conservative 2019 now saying they'd vote Reform UK. We're not saying this group is emblematic of all of them, um, but we are saying that this is an important way to get beneath the surface of what they're saying. And obviously this is a key voter group because one in five Conservative 2019 voters are currently saying they'll vote Reform. Rishi Sunak is losing votes on both sides to Labour to would not vote but also to this key group of reform voters so are they real what do they look like and what do they care about are some of the questions we try to answer this time around so that's right so uh, uh, who are these people where are they and why do we pick them uh, so they well, are crucially, in... we
2: didn't an independent market research company absolutely so James and I have a conversation who do we want to speak to this time uh, we said people who voted Conservative last time now say they were leaning really to reform. Market research company goes off and finds them. Where were they from?
3: Yep, three key constituencies: uh, Derby North, Blythe Valley, uh, obviously a key seat that fell to the Conservatives in 2019, um, and also down in Stroud as well. So seats that you'd expect, you know, reform to not necessarily pick up, but to eat into the Tory vote if they were to do well. And
2: seats if they do eat into the Tory vote. They may well flip Labour. That's Absolutely. the that's the crucial thing. So we're not saying this seats so of reform and effort necessarily going to win. But if Vichy if Sinak can get a lot of these people back, he's, he's not ahead, but he's back in the game at least. So let's kick off as we always do. This is what happened when James asked the group how they feel the government is doing.
7: I don't think they're doing very well at all. I'm quite disgusted, to be honest. And all of this is happening because we've got no money. And and the country's
8: overloaded. Obviously, they fight between themselves, which is annoying. Nothing seems to change from one year to the next. Over the last year, I've kind of just lost faith completely. I don't... It's almost like anything they say, just expect the opposite. I've got four youngsters that are so disenchanted with everything that they're not even bothering to vote any longer.
6: It doesn't really matter... Who is going to be in charge? We have an NHS system that's busting at the seams. Why is it busting at the seams? Because we've got too many people in the country using it. I cannot start stand Rishi Sunak. He's just a horrible, horrible, small, little man.
2: Wowzers. Now, a reminder, these are people who voted Conservative in 2019, so voted for, for Boris Johnson and, you know, Rishi Sunak was the Chancellor and uh, and all of that. I mean, that's just pretty grim. I mean, it's, I'll be honest, it's fairly standard fare, for, it, possibly a bit worse than, uh, than, than the ones who say they flipped to Labour, but it's pretty
3: tough. It's brutal. You know, the Conservative coalition has fallen apart. Uh, these are people that uh, gave the Conservatives that 80-seat majority in 2019, And they are not only, they've not only gone off the Conservatives, you know, they've really gone off the Conservatives. Um, It was interesting sort of tracking the turning points that they talked about. You know, they talked about Mm. Boris Johnson and the parties. Might seem like long ancient history to us, but uh, that's still fresh in the minds of voters. They talked about Liz Trust putting their pensions up, they made a big link between that. And then they felt that Rishi Sunak was ineffective and weak. So uh, those sort of three leaders, three leaders in their three moments, have really sort of created a huge gap. And then they also have this huge frustration about immigration too, um, which you heard come through there. And they don't feel like any mainstream party is actually talking about it.
2: So let's move on then. Um, in fact, we'll probably skip the bit on the turning points. So let's go to, you know, it's interesting, Partygate, Liz Trust and all that's still coming up. Um, uh, they also talked about housing and how their adult children are still living with them. Uh, so you put all that together, you asked what they thought Britain would look like in 10 years. Uh, now, we should say that some people might find some of the comments made here offensive, but these are the real views of real people who will vote at the election when it comes. So let's take a listen to that.
6: 10 years' time, there will be no Britain. It will be... Little wherever, little Muslim country. Uh,
3: Who agrees with that? Who disagrees with that?
8: We're a diverse country. Like, There's a lot of different people who live here and that doesn't bother me. I just don't know if we're big enough to welcome every single person. Where should these people go then instead?
6: Where they've already come from. France, Germany, Hungary... It's
7: uh, our benefit system that that, that attracts them. And at the end of the day, they're mostly young men on their own or the young married men with a young family. It can't be that dangerous because they leave the wife and the children behind.
2: Now, James, it was interesting this because uh, some, some of our listeners who normally get in touch and say, where do you find these people, these idiots, whatever, will say, well, they, you know, this is why... Uh, you know, they will get cross about hearing someone talk about us becoming little Muslim country or whatever you, uh, the guy was saying. But race clearly plays a part in how some people will vote. It's interesting that some of the people who were voting reform actually came out quite strongly against what he was saying. But then immigration also comes into a numbers game and people saying, well, well, our public services can't cope. And it's very hard to say... Right now, that our public services are coping, whether that's to do with too many people or not enough money or whatever it might
3: be. Yeah, for one guy on that group, it was clearly a it was clearly a racial a racial concern about immigration. Um, it's always difficult as a focus group moderator in situations like that because obviously you know the whole point is to research. You're meant to listen, um, but I did make him. I did try and get him to explain it. You know, you've got to try and get people to explain these things. It often ends up that they can't, and it's basically you know because they're worried about Muslims. Um, but. Uh, Lots of concern about numbers as well, impact on services, a lot of frustration in terms of immigration and the impact on housing and, and availability of housing. And also um, a lot of concern on this question of uh, well, um, you know, are we actually sort of you know able to uh, maintain the public services and infrastructure um, when it comes to this? And also a sense that British people, particularly British homeless people, it's quite interesting because you might think that's something that might appeal more to the left. Obviously, something that Corbyn talked a lot about in 2017, 2019, But also a sense that the British homeless people were also being overlooked by the government um, to, in their eyes, help and boost low skilled immigration. So a real frustration there. It is is, you know, whether listeners like it or not, it is going to be one of the big issues uh, of the general election. Yes, for some it's about race, but for others it's about other issues. And it's going to define it. And if parties don't have an answer to it, they will go to parties like Reform UK. And I suppose,
2: given what we've heard in the last... And we'll come on to Lee Anderson, and and specifically what you said in a moment, but when politicians say, oh, I've had a very good reaction to what this is... You know, people have been getting in touch with me. There are people who will take racist positions on things. But it's just, I suppose, there's a question of... Because you could, if you're in Downing Street or work for a political party, you could you could get a whole load of people, you could pit the demographic right, pit a whole load of people, uh, do a focus group, and then go and do a presentation and say, actually, if you're really racist, this will go down very well with these people. There's just whether... you know the, But there's a huge political risk of doing that because you are, might end up losing people elsewhere.
3: Yeah, look, I think... I mean, you'll, you'll see it in the Anderson comments. You know, people are always when they when they hear that something might have been islamophobic or racist it's actually quite a high bar for them to go and defend it so even if they might have the same views or as here the reform uk voters that actually will tend to go oh yeah that didn't sound very good that didn't sound very nice that sounded a bit racist so you know p- people really need to be need to politicians need to be careful on this In some ways, Rishi Sunak ends up in the worst of both worlds because he's sacked Lee Anderson, um, but also didn't condemn the comments as Islamophobic. And actually, even with these reform voters, if he'd have done that and gone all full tilt, they probably would have respected him more than taking the Anderson side. In fact, as we're on the subject of Lee Anderson, let's turn our attention to this. So clearly,
2: he had the whip removed at the weekend for saying that uh, um, Islamists had taken control of London and of the Labour mayor, Sadiq Khan. So let's hear... Uh, what they uh, had to say about that.
7: Well, obviously, he's come to that fact of saying that because of what's been going on in London with the Palestinian flags everywhere. It should not be allowed in our country. We are not allowed to offend the Islamic community, and yet they offend
8: us in many ways, and they won't integrate. The position he's he's in, he needs to kind of be careful what, what he is saying. But then is it just, is it take, can add to context as someone just said, oh, that's racist.
5: I think he's just being openly feisty to stir up something a bit
3: like Farage. He's trying to do the old Marmite politics of getting you to like it or not like it.
6: He's saying what a hell of a lot of people are thinking. We've seen Palestinian demonstrations in London, the police hold their flags. Um, you carry a white flag with the red cross on it in London, you're gonna get arrested for being racist. And I might okay. be racist, I don't know. But I'm British and this is my country.
3: But let me ch- challenge that a, a little, Darren. I mean, what, what's the difference between what you've just said and and uh what Sadiq Khan's been saying? I mean, you know, he's he's British, isn't he?
6: Um only by <laughs> birth. It's uh, Isn't that that a racist? Itself? Isn't that a racist no, it's itself? like I said earlier. This country was a Christian country. I
5: think you've taken a very narrow view
3: about society. I don't
2: agree with it. To be clear that's someone else on the group, it's not you uh, you going back and challenging him there. So again, this is a this but this goes to the heart of the the political challenge and, and Lee Anderson may well be getting people you know, he says this that he goes to the pub and people shake him by the hand and he's been in deluged by messages uh, from people saying they agree with him. I suppose there's a question of whether or not there is political capital in it or are you appealing to a actually a very small g- group of people, whereas others, you know, are getting messages in now and people saying this is the silent majority speaking and it's just where you where you place that in terms of political priority.
3: No, I think if Lee Anderson had have said everything but that last bit about Sadiq Khan's mates, then uh, I think, um, you know, that would have... I'd be sitting here saying, yeah, that is the kind of thing that, you know, appeals to... Uh, a wider demographic than just the chap you heard yeah. on the on the focus group there but you know he obviously made something which has been you know very, very which has been viewed as very problematic and apart from a couple of the more outspoken voices yeah. on the group, and remember, you know, focus groups, you do get, you know, louder people speaking up. Um, uh, apart from a couple of those voices, um, that clearly made a few of them squeamish. And I think that's the takeaway from this. This is a group of Conservative to Reform UK switchers. If you were thinking, you know, in stereotype terms, you would think these are the people who are going to be, you know, waving the Anderson flag, yeah. ready to defend him. Actually, only two really did. And for most of the others, they just heard that this was a bit of a nasty comment. And I think that's the thing. Even amongst this group, actually, those comments backfired.
2: And is it just because you can have legitimate concerns about the way that London is being policed, uh, the protests, immigration, housing and all of that, and people worry that if you voice those legitimate concerns, you end up being accused of being racist? And Lee Anderson doing it basically in quite a ham-fisted way makes them feel even more uncomfortable and and squeamish. Okay, let's move uh, back to Rishi Sunak now and uh, take a listen to what they said about the Prime Minister, bearing in mind that he leaves the party they voted for uh, less than five years ago, asking the focus group to sum up in a word how they feel about
4: Rishi Sunak.
8: Ineffective. Rich.
7: Solid.
4: Looks after number one.
8: Pratt, T. -T. Weak and willowy. A showman. I'm disillusioned.
2: And here is what they feel Wishi Sunak is missing.
8: He
7: doesn't have a clue. He's so rich. He doesn't know what we feel, what we think, what we need. He's
8: just just not the right person. Yeah, Yeah. he doesn't know what a cost-of-living crisis is. Yeah, unrelatable. doesn't have to worry about who pays his bills, where the next penny's coming from. He doesn't care. He's not interested. Why is he a politician
5: then? If he's got all that money, why is he a politician? He wanted to serve his constituents. He, he, he doesn't, doesn't
6: do. want to serve anyone. He well, we'll have
5: to disagree
3: that on that. We're going to have to disagree on that because if you say it for that person,
6: you say it for all MPs. So
2: interesting. We used to get that a lot at the beginning when when Boris soon first became prime minister. People giving giving uh, him the benefit of the doubt. He's not in it to line his own pockets after all the Boris Johnson shenanigans and all that. Interesting. One lone voice there. Try to sort of uh, still hold it up. Um... Unrelatable, detached, you know, smug, rich, all of that stuff. Um, It's quite hard to shake that off, isn't it? Very hard.
3: And I think the scary thing for number 10 there is that this is, you know, this is copy and paste what you hear from a group who are defecting to Labour. Um, So, you know, that out-of-touch thing is something that's also, you know, concerned people who culturally, at least, had more in common with the Conservatives, certainly in 2019. And these people voted for Boris Johnson because of, Immigration, because of concerns yeah. about crime, because of um, you know uh, frustrations about the pace in which you know their town or society was changing. People who voted Leave, uh, they are now looking and seeing that the Conservative leader is out of touch with them. So really concerning.
2: It's so and funny that hard. though, because Boris Johnson is is not a poor man.
3: I, I, so <laughs> we get this in the US. I, 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 we have people saying, you know, um, uh, I, had, I had a great quote from an interview in the US the other day saying, uh, you know, Trump, um, he understands people like us. He's not in it for the money. Um, <laughs> And if you remember when we did our Boris yeah, and Keir yeah. focus groups, they would, always, they would often say that Keir Starmer was the private schoolboy and yeah, Boris yeah, yeah. was the man of the people. Yeah, incredible. But
2: it's all to do with perception. It? And if you, if you don't like how you're perceived, then you've got to do something about it. But bearing in mind, these are people who've gone from conservative to reform, so they're probably not going to overly like Keir Starmer and the Labour Party, which becomes clear. Uh, this is what they had to say about Keir Starmer in a word.
8: Unpleasant. untrustworthy, trustworthy. Smarmy.
2: And likeable. Reserved.
8: Follower. Not a leader. Sniper.
2: Sniper. Now, when I first heard that, I thought, you know, man on a rooftop, you know, in the uh, Texas book depository.
3: Clinically taking out tories.
2: Yes. Well, I think it just means sniping from the sidelines is basically uh, basically what it meant. Uh, so you also asked him, what's Keir Starmer
3: missing?
8: He's missing a personality. He's just a bit unlikable, really. He's got a tape of face. you could punch. He's just a horrible man.
3: Come on, you've got to give us some more detail there.
8: What makes you think that? Well, he's ugly, isn't he, for a start off? I know he can't help that, but he is. I don't know, he's just brazen and he he thinks he's right and he's not. I just think we don't actually know what their policies and their, their mission is.
2: So, the <laughs> it's weird. we've had this before about Keir Starmer's face, and some people say, shouldn't be about that, should it be about your policies and do your tax and spending plans add up. But um, this is what some people base their decisions
3: on. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think the important thing there for the Conservatives is they will be looking to squeeze this vote. Mm. You know, this is what parties do. They'll be looking, and they'll be doing focus groups like this to think, how do we get the Reform UK voters back and clearly, Keir Starmer is a big part of that. I think earlier on in the focus group, somebody said, we need Keir Starmer like we need a hole in the head. And c- Conservatives will be thinking about that and trying to inject that fear into these Reform UK voters' minds. Vote reform, get Starmer. So how do you get them back?
2: Uh, this was them... Because uh, they've said they're leaning towards Reform UK. Uh, but what, uh, why are they doing that? What is what is their driving force behind that? that Rishi Sunak might be able to try and address...
3: I like some of their policies. I like the ownership of utilities and what's happening with the rivers and with billions of pounds of dividends. Just absolutely outrageous.
7: Well, I like the policies, net zero migration and
8: cheaper energy. I think we should give them a chance. It is something that I share beliefs in. And I think why not vote for that party that think the same things? We seem to work in five-year cycles between Conservative and Labour. And the UK reform, I think... Is a short, sharp shock. Is it time for a
6: change? Is it
8: time that we did go for something different?
6: Give somebody else a chance, give somebody else a go. Let's see what they're made of. What have we got at the minute? Conservatives not doing a great lot at all. Labour will be worse, as they always are. You know, give them a go.
2: It's interesting that I mean talking about utilities. I think reform have only said they don't end foreign ownership of uh, national infrastructure, not necessarily nationalise them. It's interesting, that, but I suppose it's the nature of a protest vote. You know, they accept in the group that they're not going to win, so you can sort of slightly project whatever you like on them. And when you've got the party promising to cut taxes and have zero waiting lists or whatever, then. You know, you can it it can be whatever you want it to be.
3: Yeah, I slightly wonder whether he thought that was the GB energy po- uh, policy from Keir Starmer rather than from from Reform. Yeah, um, which again uh, sums up that that sort of you know con- confusion o- over things. I thought that was pretty scary for the Conservatives because. Um, you know, explicitly, they don't think they can win, yet they're still voting for them. And like I say, we're not in a campaign, we've not heard that squeeze message yet. Um, but it also sounded a little bit more positive than just a protest vote. You know, they do, they're so fed up that they think it's worth a go. And I suppose if you're so, if you've set your mind against Labour, and obviously you know,
2: Labour on whatever it is, 40, 45% of the polls, but if you have set your, you know, I'm not going to vote Labour, then you've, but you look at the polls and you've accepted that they are going to win. Just not with your vote. Then you can sort of there's a sort of freedom to what you choose to do. Then and you can go with your gut. And the, quite a lot of what they liked about reform was more vibes than, than policy. Then you know it, it doesn't matter. In a way, it doesn't matter what you do. So you might as well go with the people that you know you think are talking your language, whatever it might be.
3: Yeah, yeah. And at the moment, there's no consequence to doing that. And the big question is, what I would love to do, Matt. We don't usually do this, but it would be fascinating to go back to this exact group on the eve of the election because I wonder how many of them will still be saying reform. It's interesting that, yeah, we should definitely um, definitely think about doing that.
2: So uh, let's move on then and see what they thought about the reform leadership. Oh no, let's let's have what they uh, what might hold them back, any hesitations they might have, again, things that the uh, the number ten might be able to exploit.
8: That we have what we had before, you know, when the liberals and the hung parliament and and unfortunately they weren't able. To carry out you know their policies
6: it splits the conservative vote and in walks keir starmer we need him like a bloody hole in the ad i mean he's the guy who gave all the illegal immigrants the route to be able to claim benefits in 2008 in his legal position
1: there
5: will be sadly some people in that past because it's very young and small that are
3: extremists in their views so, uh, I think the,
2: the the claim there about Keir Starmer is somewhat open to debate. I think it relates to something in 2003 in a court case uh, um, which uh, he he was the barrister representing people. So, again, it's this idea that, you know, the Tories are trying to push that any court case he was involved in yeah. he must therefore have been uh, campaigning on. Interesting their talk of a hung parliament. That a concern that if, basically, the polls narrowed and it looked like the Lib Dems and Labour might be in coalition then suddenly they might think about coming back. But if yeah. it, basically, if it looks like a foregone conclusion, why not vote, Yeah, you know, with your gut?
3: I think that's right, and that's where it's going to really matter. We saw that happen in 2017, where people thought, you know, there's no chance that Jeremy Corbyn can become Prime Minister. So lots of people thought, oh, I'll vote Lib Dem or I won't vote Conservative. And obviously, actually, Jeremy Corbyn ended up doing better than expected. So ex- expectations are everything, and, and those hung Parliament concerns are really, are really vivid still.
2: Well, let's talk about the two uh I was gonna say the two leaders of the uh of reform themselves. Uh obviously the party's actually led by Richard Tice. Uh let's hear them. Uh sum up Richard Tice in a word.
6: Don't know. He seems to be decisive, but we shall see.
8: I don't know much about him. <laughs> I'm saying don't know. Yeah, I don't know much about him either.
1: Uh, fresh but unknown.
7: He is a young man, which is what we need, but um, sadly not enough people know about him.
2: Well, not enough people know he's fifty nine for starts, but you know he's also got a good skincare uh, regime. Uh, lots of people obviously look to Nigel Farage. He's the president of Reform. He he turned the Brexit Party into Reform. Lots of people who support Reform want him to come back. So, how do they feel about Nigel Farage? In a word,
8: straight to the point, proactive,
6: knows what we need, self serving, straight speaking,
8: a man who knows what he wants and how to get it. Excellent speaker
7: great personality, reaches the people, genuine.
4: So they
2: like him. They so like him a lot. Him returning to frontline politics could perhaps lock in their vote for reform in a way that, you know, some of the things they were wavering on.
3: Yeah, we asked them whether they'd be more or less likely or just just the same to vote reform if Farage didn't. Every single one of them said more likely. Um, and I think Farage probably brings other people to reform as well. Um, That faith in the Conservatives and Labour is so low that it does make you think, you know, if he did come back, he could power this up. But then also it could end up you know, like UKIP, you, you know, they get a respectable vote share, but they don't win any seats. So it's a difficult decision, I think, for, for Nigel Farage. But what is absolutely clear, and we've heard it in all of our focus groups since he came out of the jungle uh, in December, um, that Farage has has really sort of, you know, bolstered his reputation, not just with these voters, but with Conservative to Labour switches as well.
2: Um, just before we do the final questions, because um, this goes to the heart of the purpose of a focus group, somebody's uh, messaging saying, the level of misinformation spouted by your sample of reform voters is staggering. Why don't you challenge and correct them on the actual facts?
3: So so the key point about focus groups is that you are listening. It's not my job to go and tell them what is the case, what isn't the case. Is that that's an interview? That's for that's, that's yeah. politicians. You know, we are listening on the ground about what people say. There is one caveat to that. When somebody is openly racist on a focus group, I do intervene, not to stop the group, because again, we're here to listen, but to get them to explain themselves, to force them to explain why they're saying what they say. And I think that's important to do. You don't derail the group in doing it, but you get to an explanation. And often, surprise, surprise, they can't actually explain it. Um, but with that aside, this is a listening exercise... It ain't my responsibility to, to to correct them. That's for politicians and the media and whoever else. We've had absolutely loads of the usual messages. Where the hell do you get these focus group people from? They're
2: absolute idiot- idiots. Uh, where the heck do you get these people from? Why do we have to listen to these uninformed, unintelligent drivel? Because, because, John, these are voters. And these are voters who are going to decide the outcome of the general election. And if you only listen to people you agree with highly engaged political animals, you'll have no idea what's going on in Britain. And that's how you end up being surprised that Boris Johnson won in 2019 and that Leave won in 2016. Uh, But let's look ahead then to what happens at the next election. How would this group feel if they wake up the morning after the election to discover that Rishi Sunak is back as Prime Minister?
5: Resigned, but philosophical.
8: Deflated in the sense of lack of the hope of change. I think I just wonder how he'd done it. Deflated. Disillusioned.
6: Disappointed.
8: Oh, my God. Ambivalent.
2: There we are. Uh, And this is what they would think if they wake up to find Kiss Starmer in number 10.
8: Hopeful. (laughs) Unsure. Oh, terrible. Disgusted. Concerned. Relieved.
2: Relieved. It's interesting. They're sort of... uh, the idea that they are former Tory voters who've just popped over to reform but might pop back, that actually part of what's driven them to reform is a just anger towards the Conservatives. And so anything which punishes the Conservatives, even if somebody else does the dirty job of voting Labour, they might be all right with.
3: Yeah, I think there's just like, I think you know, they're, just, they're just really angry about politics as a whole. And they're angry with both main parties. As I say, though, I do think that comes off worse for Starmer than it is for, Sun- for Sunak. And you can see that in the in the leadership ratings when you dig in in the polling for reform voters they are much more hostile towards Starmer than they are Sunak and like I say the Tory party is going to be putting a lot of hope on that that they can get those voters back even if they get half of them back though there is still going to be a significant number of people switching to reform and that may well cost the Conservative seats
2: Massive thanks to James Johnson as ever and if you want to listen back to any of our previous focus groups with different types of voters just search for Times Radio Focus Group wherever you're listening to this get in touch in the usual ways Matt at times.radio but for now for me Matt Cholly it's goodbye